0: Hello, and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. I'm today's host, Megan Payne, and with me today we have Kyle Hayes. Kyle, welcome to uh, Not the Host's Seat. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. It's kind of weird to sit in this chair. I almost, as soon as I clapped us in, I almost started doing the intro, but I'm excited you're hosting today.
0: I almost forgot to do the intro because I was waiting for you to do it. And also with us today, we have Luke Boggs. Hey there, Luke. How you doing?
2: I'm doing good. Excited you're back, Megan. I'm excited I get to spar with Kyle for a while.
0: Yeah, today should be fun. So on today's podcast, we will discuss a ruling from the state Supreme Court that allows the governor's actions to effectively cancel an election for a seat on that court and appoint a replacement. Then, in elections the governor can't cancel, we'll preview coming primaries for seats in Congress and the state legislature. And finally, this week, Kyle will talk to Olivia Bauer, one of our interns, about her research on the economic and environmental challenges rural Georgia faces. So let's go ahead and get into things, shall we? Last week, Georgia's Supreme Court ruled that Governor Kemp can effectively cancel an upcoming election and appoint the successor to State Supreme Court Justice Keith Blackwell. Kemp retains that power, which is usually reserved for filling vacancies. Despite the fact that Blackwell still sits in his seat today and will sit in a seat on June 9th when the election for Blackwell seat was scheduled to be held. The court interpreted the state constitution's provisions related to vacancies in a way that invites gaming of the calendar and raises questions about whether the governor's appointment powers should be changed. Kyle, I know that you've been keeping up with this story and how things have evolved. Can you give us a little background on this issue?
1: Yeah. So if you haven't been keeping up with this, it is yet another interesting chapter in the governor's appointment powers. Um, It feels like the governor gets the opportunity to appoint somebody new in some position in state government just about every week. Um, But in this instance, uh, Justice Blackwell, he sits on the state Supreme Court. He announced in February that he would be resigning from his seat on the state Supreme Court, but that resignation would be effective in November Of 2020. And under the state's constitution, the timing of Blackwell's resignation allows Governor Kemp to appoint Blackwell's successor. And we're going to talk about this ruling that affirms what, you know, we thought the governor's powers were, but that means that the governor effectively gets to cancel the 2020 election for that seat. And so the the stuff that basically set this up is that two candidates, Beth Beskin, a former state lawmaker and former congressman John Barrow, they wanted to run for the seat that Justice Blackwell currently holds? And that seat was set up to be on its regular election schedule during the primaries in May, slash the ones that were uh, the ones that were postponed to June because of the pandemic. They tried to qualify for this seat. Uh, They asked Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger if they could be put on the ballot, and Raffensperger declined to put them on the ballot, saying that this was not an election that was going to be held because of Justice Blackwell's resignation from that seat. And so that set up this ruling that has worked its way up in the courts. And uh, we got a final ruling from the state Supreme Court on the state side of this. There's also a federal case, uh, but we got the final ruling on this from the state last week.
0: Gotcha. So I know, Luke, you tend to keep up with uh, these sorts of analyses, and they're definitely right in your wheelhouse. So can you please give us a breakdown on the ruling?
2: So for the Georgia Supreme Court, this is pretty straightforward for them. They are looking at this from the perspective that in the event of a vacancy, the governor has the power to appoint a justice and that justice then will not have to will not have to face election for a certain amount of time and so since there will be a vacancy in November then that means the governor does have the power to appoint and that means there will be no election and part of what affects their belief in uh, that effectively canceling the election is the fact that they view the election process and the appointment process as being equals constitutionally speaking and that the constitution does not prefer either process and so since we know the governor knows that there effectively will be a vacancy because Justice Blackwell said that he would be resigning and the governor accepted that resignation before his term is over, even though there won't be a vacancy before the election they will there will be a, va- a vacancy before his term is over they are saying that the election should not be held because, and this is their word, not mine, it would be nugatory to have an election that wouldn't matter because it effectively would fill nothing, because there would be no seat to fill because by resigning, Blackwell terminates his judicial seat effectively.
0: This is so bizarre to me. It seems entirely convoluted. And as I understand it, the resignation once it's accepted by the governor, it can't be withdrawn. Kyle, what are your thoughts on just that particular question? Because I know that's the pivotal question in this case.
1: Yeah, so this, this question was really interesting in the ruling. Um, there isn't There isn't a really strong legal basis on either side. So they went back through going all the way back to like English common law and then tracing Georgia law through the decades up to now, they looked at provisions in other states. And if there was some sort of a judicial philosophy, Luke will correct my language because I'm a non-lawyer here, but some sort of like jurisprudence that suggests that a resignation could be rescinded. And why that's important is that the case in the, in the eyes of the 6-2 majority, the case turns on whether or not Justice Blackwell could rescind his resignation before it takes effect in November which if he did rescind it would take away this issue of there being a vacancy and the fact that there is a vacancy before the end of the term is what triggers the governor's appointment power rather than an election so that was the central question to the case there wasn't a lot of strong legal basis on either side of that so they basically decided and and I believe Luke you can correct me if I'm wrong they essentially create precedent now that a resignation once it is unequivocally in a written form given to the authority that can accept the resignation, in this case, it's the governor. Once it is given unequivocally in a written form to the governor, and the governor accepts it, that's a distinct action of acceptance by the governor, then it cannot be rescinded, which then triggers this other set of outcomes that results in the election effectively being canceled or in some cases you could say delayed for two years because the person that is ultimately appointed by the governor, they will end up on the ballot in 2022, but that seat will not be on the ballot this year.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good summation of what the majority says, but I agree with the minority that like this rescission point is really not important. Um, they really, the, the minority opinion, says it's not even determinative at all uh, for them, for themselves, you know, to, to quote them, they say, accordingly, there seems to be no reason why at the very least the resignation could not be mutually rescinded. However, whether such rescission is allowable or not is not in my opinion, determinative. Um, What they really think the case turns on, and I, I tend to be of this view as well. And I want to point out here, this is not some liberal dippy, you know, hippy-dippy judge, this is one appointed by Nathan Deal, um, our former former Republican governor. Um, they they are far more uh viewing this case from the framing that what really matters when a, looking doing an analysis of this issue is that from the Georgia Constitution, there is a expectation, a right, they would argue, that Supreme Court justices defaultly are elected by voters. That is how you get on the Georgia Supreme Court is you are elected by the voters. And the appointment situation is the in case of emergency, this is what's there, how how you deal with a emergency vacancy. And that issue is one where I think there's a lot of debate that you should and could have. Uh, where, but the majority really skates over it so this would be a good time for me to point out the fact that the georgia supreme court is a interesting animal that has some interesting viewpoints uh and sometimes it's good sometimes it's bad but one thing i would say about them is they go they go further than being like textualists and i'm not talking about like originalists which they kind of a lot of them are that as well you know trying to like dive into the original meaning of you know, the Georgia Constitution and things like that. I'm far less against that, but the, the thing that they tend to do is they tend to take the literal meaning of things and go so deep into what what is before them that they sort of like lose the ability to apply common sense to situations. And so in their view, since there is nothing in the Constitution that explicitly states the provision for elections is superior to the appointment process, in their minds, there is no possibility that it could be superior. Whereas if you are looking at the document as a whole and reading what the intentions probably are, uh, you know, just based off the fact that the default position is for justices to be elected, it would then be a pretty logical conclusion that if that is what the Constitution. What happens, all else being equal, that that is the preference of the Constitution. Whereas to them, since it, there is no place that explicitly states we, you know, the Constitution as a document prefers elections, then they they see them as equal.
0: I want to ask you a quick yes or no question for the sake of context. Did Blackwell attempt to rescind his rec- resignation?
1: Not that I'm aware of. I haven't seen any reporting that suggests that he would have. And, and he seemed clear in his reasons when he first uh, issued his resignation, that he was doing this for reasons not related to the job that he wanted to go and spend more time with his family. Um, He wanted to wait like nine months before he decided to go spend time with his family. But but that was his reason.
0: Okay, that's what I thought. And that's based on what I had understood was the case wanted to ask you all just to make sure though, going back to what Luke said about how the Constitution doesn't account for a mutually agreed upon rescission. And knowing now that Blackwell didn't even attempt to rescind his resignation, do we think Blackwell is in on it and intentionally allowed Kemp to make these decisions and be able to appoint this justice? Or do we think maybe he's sitting back wishing he would have hung on to his seat a while longer so the election could have occurred as planned?
1: I think that's the real question that's important In this context, as you talk about more broadly about the governor's appointment powers, um, because I would believe that Justice Blackwell, he's a member of the Supreme Court. I think he understands the arguments that are at play here. It would not be out of the realm of possibility that he could see how this would play out. Um, And so I think, Luke, getting back to what you were talking about related to whether one provision of the Constitution related to filling the seat of a justice, whether it's an election or an appointment, whether or not one is supreme to the other. The thing that was absent to me in the ruling and absent in the discussion around this, and the thing that strikes me as a question that is not a constitutional question, but one that we have to decide uh, needs to be changed by the legislature. So not a question of constitutional interpretation, but we need to change the law is what to do in this situation where it seems pretty obvious there's a high likelihood that this provision is being gamed so that the governor and his allies have more control over who will fill that seat. That question doesn't seem to have been answered by the ruling, and it's one I think the legislature needs to weigh in on.
2: Well, you know, funnily enough, it is actually an answered in the ruling. <laughs> it's just not in the form that we're used to. So I, I want to kind of lay out one thing you didn't mention explicitly, Kyle, and then respond directly to what you said. So basically, the majority and the minority agree that because of this ruling now, what it means is if I'm a judge, an election is held, and I am defeated by my opponent, I could then immediately resign. And if the governor liked me, the governor could reappoint me. That would be constitutional. Now, That would obviously be incredibly controversial. And so to the justices on the majority, and I'm just going to read what they say, this is what they think the remedy to this situation is. And now I'm just going to quote them. To the extent that the judicial selection system is subject to the possibility of manipulation by the relevant officials as almost all government systems are, the checks against such machinations come in in forms other than courts altering the Constitution by judicial fiat, including the selection of justices with integrity, the political risk to governors who make poor appointments, and, of course, the ultimate authority of the people of Georgia to change the Constitution that governs them. The big thing that it is quite clear the majority is missing here is the fact that they are canceling an election. And so it's really hard for voters to be heard when, by decision building upon decision, they are building a clear jurisprudence built on giving the governor and giving political power holders ways to cancel the will of the voters. And so when they are basically making the argument that the way that you remedy this if you don't like it is by having the voters rise up and change things through elections— makes it really hard when the thing you're doing is canceling elections.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a high bar to clear, too, when the expectation is that the remedy is a new constitutional amendment that changes the Constitution. A a constitutional amendment requires a two-thirds majority in the House and the Senate, and it requires a 50% plus one vote in a referendum on the ballot among the people. That's a pretty high bar to clear, and when the issues that are at play here are whether or not people can like exercise their the the political preferences that they have like you know it's one thing to select the justice that you prefer in an election it's another thing to run through this entire constitutional amendment process and i think that that gives rise to sort of a a broader Discussion here that can be had in terms of remedies because there's sort of two versions of this issue related to the governor's appointment power. The first one is the one that is set out in the Constitution that we've been talking about as it relates to Supreme Court seats on the state Supreme Court. There is a second element to this, and that is that in 2018, the legislature adopted a change to statutes that had the Appointment and replacement powers for district attorneys. And Luke, I don't know if you know if it's some other positions, but have that appointment power mimic what the process is for state Supreme Court justices. But that actually uncovers for us that to change that appointment power would only require a change in statute. But as it relates to what Governor Kemp has been doing with his appointments, you know, we've talked about what he's done on this Supreme Court seat. He also failed to appoint a district attorney in Athens. He waited more than 88 days after Ken Malden announced his resignation. That mean, that also included 64 days of waiting after Ken Malden actually left office to reach this deadline that allowed him to effectively cancel a DA's election in Athens, um, which avoided sort of a more policy, politically re- relevant outcome of a criminal justice reformer, reform minded prosecutor and Deborah Gonzalez likely taking that seat. Um, So I think that this warrants sort of a broader discussion of the governor's appointment powers and its political and policy implications. But you're dealing with two sets of remedies in terms of how to move forward in making this process more fair and more accountable to voters.
2: I think what this really highlights is, again, the remedy that the majority says exists in, you know, from their opinion, which is, their their logic is, if Kemp is truly abusing his powers, you know, if Blackwell and him had a conversation that resulted in this election being canceled for whatever reason, um, and, you know, Kemp using the appointment power uh, for the DAs in a way that voters do not like, then in the minds of the majority justices, that should result in Kent being fired from the job of governor in an election. And, you know, again, the thing I think this is just not recognizing is how consistent this narrative is uh, about democracy being at risk in Georgia and how this just contributes to that opinion, even if um, they are legally right in their ruling, which I don't think they are, um, or logically right, which, again, I don't think they are. For the people that do think they're right, and for them themselves, they need to look for ways to uh, make democracy seem like it's actually working in Georgia, because because right now, by by all accounts, it's really not. And I think this is just another ruling, a long line of rulings that you know will will be in, in the history books of like how democracy died in Georgia, and hopefully, you know, the the next part of the tie will be and how it came back. <laughs> you know, when, when when we're on the upswing again.
1: You know, another layer to this, Luke, is. The question at hand here is whether or not voters have been harmed by having an election taken taken away from them. There's actually a broader discussion on whether or not elections for Supreme Court justices are a good way to seat justices in those seats anyways. The the Brennan Center for Justice, a, a progressive criminal justice reform-minded organization, um they actually recommend getting rid of elections for state supreme court justices in general and and you may wonder to yourself you know we've spent the last 25 minutes like defending the right to an election for state supreme court justices how do we entertain this idea that some progressives think an election shouldn't happen at all um but their argument is that these elections already are not very accessible to people they're not high profile elections that people pay a lot of attention to they tend to be nonpartisan so you don't have Partisan cues, but you also have the problems of: Do you want partisan cues given to voters for uh, officials elected in the judicial branch? Um, but as a result of voters not paying very much attention to these elections, it means that corporate interests tend to be the ones who shape discussion around these elections by dumping a lot of dark money into these races and airing ads that you know can cast one candidate or another unfairly on sort of obscure issues that actually they're important to a corporate interest and maybe not important to your average voter. You know, voters are not super in tune with these elections already. And so, if you're actually looking for a a broader solution that makes a court system more fair, more accountable to democratic you know, the the democratic inclinations of people in general, some system of appointments where the appointments are set up by a bipartisan commission that has really clear nominating criteria for the people who can be nominated to be considered for appointment by somebody like a governor, that that actually may be a more effective way and a more balanced way to have sort of the democratic inclinations of people ultimately represented by the justices that end up sitting on these courts.
0: So it would seem that there is consensus, even among those that don't necessarily agree that an election should occur, that something is rotten in the state of Denmark slash (laughs) Georgia. Sorry for the convoluted Shakespeare reference there. Um, So let's go ahead and talk about the possible candidates that Kim can choose from. I know we have Sarah Doyle, who is uh, the Georgia Court of Appeals judge. We have Carlton Latane. Also known as Tane Kell, the Cobb Judicial Circuit Superior Court Judge, Sean Ellen Lagrua, um, the Atlanta Judicial Circuit Superior Court Judge, and Jay Wade Paget, Augusta Judicial Circuit Superior Court Judge. What can y'all tell us about each of these potential candidates, and is there one that sticks out as possibly a leader?
1: Yeah, I, and I actually think this is a good segue from what we were just talking about, because the way this works in Georgia is a judicial nominating commission provides a short list of candidates that the governor can choose from. You know, there may be questions about whether or not that process is is a bipartisan, fair process. Um, but these are the four names that the governor has to choose from to appoint a successor for Justice Blackwell. If there was sort of a leader in the clubhouse, in my mind, it might be Sarah Doyle, because she has sort of been in this conversation for a while. She was considered by Governor Deal. It was reported that she was a top two candidate when Charlie Bethel got appointed to the state Supreme Court over her. Sarah Doyle also qualified to run for the seat that is being vacated by Justice Robert Benham. Um, I'm a little unclear where that election is, but but she is somebody who's been in these circles for a little while. Among the other three, I don't know that there's all that much notable about their records. From what I could tell, J. J Wade Padgett had a little bit of like tough-on-crime vibes to him. In one case, he opted to sentence a man to six months in prison despite a recommendation of probation in that case. He cited shootings of police officers in, in Dallas and Baton Rouge and said that this man, who had resisted arrest from officers in Augusta and in Richmond County, needed to, to have a tough message sent to him in light of other crimes against police officers. I don't know that we know that much more about about the rest of this crew. Um, they have been sort of deemed qualified to be selected by this Judicial Nominating Commission. Um, but I'm sure we will learn more about them once Governor Kemp is close to making this decision. And and once he's made it, you know, this person is is likely to run for the full six-year term in 2022. We'll learn a lot about their jurisprudence then.
0: Moving on to our second topic of the episode, we are recording our podcast on Tuesday, May 19th, which is the original date of the Georgia primary elections. These elections have now been pushed to June 9th, as we mentioned in our, in our previous section. The races of notes in these primaries are for Purdue's U.S. Senate seat, and both the Democratic and Republican primaries for uh, Georgia's 7th congressional district. There are also many other Georgia seats up for debate in the upcoming primaries. And um, let's just go ahead and take a few minutes to preview what's on the ballot. The contests for our senators have gotten national attention, especially due to Georgia's possible purple and flippable status. Kyle, what is the lay of the land for the primary race for the Purdue seat?
1: This one has been really interesting to watch in that it has been difficult for me to sort of interpret where things stand. Um, So in this race currently on the Democratic side, you have you have John Ossoff, who raised a boatload of money and ran in Georgia six, but lost to Karen Handel in 2017. That first special election of the Trump era, you have Teresa Tomlinson, the former mayor of Columbus, and you have Sarah Riggs Amico, who ran for lieutenant governor in 2018, It's been interesting to watch this one amidst the pandemic, because only recently have you started to see candidates really make strong contrasts with each other. Teresa Tomlinson has been on the attack, particularly against John Ossoff, so you could sort of infer that John Ossoff may be the leader in this race. John Ossoff in the Atlanta Press Club debate sort of acted like the frontrunner when he was given the opportunity to attack other candidates, particularly when they get to question each other. He sort of took a pass and asked for one of the lesser known candidates to uh, describe that candidate's experience as a veteran who served in Iraq. Um, and then you have Sarah Riggs Amica, who is a part of this race, who most notably, I think, has gotten the backing of labor unions and has done so Despite the fact that her company had to restructure and declare bankruptcy, I have found her description of that process and her actions in it to be pretty compelling. Um, And she uses that to highlight the ways in which she fights for workers and validates that by showing the labor unions that are backing her. But despite all of that, I think it's kind of hard to know where this stands amidst the pandemic and the fact that. I don't know. Maybe a lot of people aren't paying attention. I don't. What do you think, Luke?
2: Yeah, I, w- I would just second that. I don't think people were paying attention before the pandemic, and <laughs> I kind of remember us talking about this race on the show, where you know we were like, "Well, when the election gets closer, I'm sure people will start paying attention more," and that just really never happened in a substantive way. I feel like for the like larger um, Georgia Democrat community, in my opinion. You know, maybe I'm a little biased because I'm still in the general Athens area and we have a lot of really intense uh county races going on right now. And we have the state house races that we're trying to take back, and you know, those state house seats we're trying to take back, and those get so much more discussion, even though they you know, I guess as far as like buzz news wise, you would think would get less. And people are always decrying that no one cares about local elections. But I guess, you know, for the circles that I hang out in, that is the case because barely anyone talks about the Senate race. That being said, I think for most people, it's really come down to an Ossoff versus Teresa Tomlinson camp. And it's not even a like, people are fighting and paying attention and like they have picked a side. It's really like, who do you already know about? And that's which person you picked.
1: Well, in that dynamic, I think is very helpful to John Ossoff. I think people tend to have pretty warm feelings about him and he raised a boatload of money. So he, generated a lot of name ID there. I sort of wonder how much substance is behind that. And I think that sort of informs the contrast that Teresa Tomlinson has tried to pull in this race. Uh, She recently released a memo, the AJC reported on it, where she went after Ossoff on his lack of experience compared to her experience as the mayor of a city, and most notably amidst the coronavirus pandemic she is. Uh, beginning to note that she was the public safety director, which I presume is is part of her duties as mayor of Columbus when she was mayor. Uh, Um, Depending
2: on Columbus's uh, staff size, that actually might have been its own position.
1: Oh, I wonder if she held it before she was mayor. I mean, she says she was public safety director, which brings to mind the uh, lack of public safety that is being ensured by her political opponents and and uh, officials in Washington. She also notes that she hits off on the fact that Ossoff could not be Karen Handel despite raising a boatload of money, um, and that she feels like she can perform adequately in the metro Atlanta area. Um, and she can expand on what she refers to as the Stacey Abrams model and improve margins in rural Georgia that would give her the votes to top Purdue in the general election in November um, and so she basically makes this argument that the lack of attention on this race and sort of the, I mean, I would describe it as sort of lazily picking John Ossoff, if if it just doesn't appear there's an alternative there, that that sort of feeling that she gets among national Democrats would be potentially forfeiting an opportunity to put the most competitive candidate out there in November. You know, Ossoff obviously would have his own retorts to this. Um, When he's been pressed by Teresa Tomlinson, when he had an opportunity to sort of throw an elbow at her in the debate, there was a question about polling and how Ossoff performs in polling and Ossoff fired back, your campaign is so uncompetitive that they didn't even poll you in one of these, you know, Republican or, or internal polls. Pretty much all Um, the
2: Republican polls I've seen. Yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, Ossoff tends to be the one who gets polled, which I think sort of contributes to to her, to Tomlinson saying that sort of it's sort of a lazy approach by national politicians or national political organizations to sort of write this primary off in favor of Ossoff. I think that's the dynamic you've got. And then I don't really know where Sarah Riggs sits in that. Like, does she pull votes from either one or...
2: So I think that was the status quo a couple months ago. Uh, in my, I, I want to lay one thing out here. I'm not paid by the Ossoff campaign. <laughs> <laughs> I have not spoken to John Ossoff, except that one time I kind of like said, hello, John Ossoff, as he walked into a room. I voted for him, and I'll say why I did, and maybe that kind of will explain the dynamics of this race, because I will say, coming into this race, I was a very solid John Ossoff skeptic. I Like, he was... I, I really would have ordered it like I was thinking of Teresa Tomlinson, Sarah Riggs Miko, and then him. And uh, I think the reason why Teresa Tomlinson got uh, rigging off is because if you were in the state of Georgia and you paid attention to Democrats at all, I think maybe you know within two hours of David p- Perdue being elected, I was aware that Teresa Tomlinson was p- playing on running against him. She had a pretty long runway. To be like, I'm gonna run against Purdue and I'm gonna do a great job at it. And she did a really, really, for lack of a better term, shitty job at it. She had a bunch of time to come out with an ad, you know, like, because I mean, even Stacey Evans, who got her ass handed to her uh, by Stacey Abrams in the election had a strong argument had a strong opening and it was very clear it's something she wanted and thought about and was going to try real hard to win and i just don't i just did not see that from theresa tomlinson she got ran off because she ran a really crappy campaign and she created a, a vacuum for someone like john ossoff to fill and the other thing that i've really you know the dynamic i'm feeling between the two campaigns and again i'm biased since i you know i did vote for one of them um is like Ossoff feels like Generic Democrat man running, and like he's running generic Democrat ads, and he's you know making the arguments that you would hope a Democrat would make, and he's doing it well. Whereas like Teresa Thomason kind of always seems like she's trying to recover from her initial six months of not doing a great job and every ad feels like a reintroduction to teresa tomlinson which is like something you can do if you're an incumbent who's had like a crappy first two years and you need to turn her around but you know when you're when you're having a crappy campaign you can't just like relaunch it every couple months and that it's kind of feeling like the early days of the john mccain 2008 campaign where they're just trying to rebrand themselves every five minutes
0: yeah i'd say that the the off like kind of gener- generic democrat man really kind of rings true and it's very much a mirror of what we're seeing with the democratic pr- presidential primary right like we've got joe biden the very stereotypical democratic man not super, I mean, he's a little bit more notable because of everything that's going on with Tara Reid, um, which thankfully Ossoff does not have. But then we have Ossoff, who's just very, very similar, like a generic white dude who is running as a Democrat. Ideally, like what I really wanted to see was Teresa Tomlinson really come out of the gates swinging because – when i first saw her declare i was like yes i want a woman in this seat um i want a female who can like really stand up and hold her own and i really want to flip georgia not just democrat i mean republican to democrat but to see her to see us also have put a woman in power and really change the status quo and we're just not seeing that and i also don't see that with a, a Sarah Riggs-Amico. I just don't find her to be a very strong candidate either. I, I I honestly am kind of finding all the Democratic candidates to be a little bit lackluster. Um, and I wish that weren't the case. I wish I weren't saying that. But that's the reality that we're in, I think.
1: Well, I think the challenge, you know, I think there's a couple of challenges for Teresa Tomlinson and Sarah Riggs-Amico that could be liabilities in a general election, um, particularly with attacks by Republicans. For Sarah Igzamiko, she is constantly asked about the bankruptcy that her business went through. I find her response personally to be quite compelling. I think she uses it artfully to point out broader structural issues that are not were things that were not caused by her company, but that she, as a responsible business owner, used her power to protect workers in her company and she can leverage that experience to protecting workers in the US Senate. I think she delivers that message well. But it also lends itself to a 30 second ad that calls her an irresponsible businesswoman that let her company get run into the ground. I think that's what Republicans will say. For Teresa Tomlinson, she has come under a lot of criticism by other candidates in this race. And we should say there is a group of lesser known candidates that I think is not likely to be very competitive. I will give a shout out to Maya Dillard Smith, who in the Atlanta Press Club debate really showed herself as a compelling champion for working class people. But in doing that, she took on Sarah Amico and uh, Teresa Tomlinson for being a part of the haves, while Maya, while Maya Dillard Smith is a part of the have-nots, and question Teresa Tomlinson's relationship with the African American community in Columbus. Part of this is rooted in a situation where uh, prison labor in Columbus was doing work for the city, including things like cleaning golf courses. That was a a really blunt distinction that was put out there by one of the other candidates in the debate. She says that this was a state program, but she got questioned and berated over and over again about whether or not she was a credible public servant in the interests of African-American people in her community. And the thing that I think is really challenging with Teresa Tomlinson's rationale for why she is the most electable is if she is constantly the subject of attacks, saying that she doesn't have a good relationship with African-Americans, she will not be a good representative for African-Americans in Washington, Republicans can use that to depress enthusiasm for her among that community, and that undermines her case that she can build on the Stacey Abrams model. Um, I think that's sort of a dynamic that is is very challenging for Teresa Tomlinson right now.
0: So moving into the primary elections for the Georgia 7th Congressional District, Luke, there are a lot of female powerhouses now involved in the Georgia seven election, and this includes an endorsement from AOC. Do you think that will affect the outcome of the election, especially as it relates to the Democrats?
2: I don't think it will, honestly. If endorsements were the determining factor, then Teresa Tomlinson would be blowing Ossoff out of the water because she has far more endorsements uh, than he does, uh, though John Ossoff probably has the most coveted in- endorsement in Georgia besides Stacey Abrams and having John Lewis's endorsement. Um, the, you know, I, I, I just don't think people really noticed endorsements that much. It will make some deci- you know, some people's decisions on the margins. But, um, I think this race is really far more competitive than the Senate race. Cause I, I, I feel like everyone who's in that one has a bit of a shot in it. And I am looking for that one to be a surprise in either the outcome or the margins.
0: Gotcha. And just to be clear, I'm referring to the Nabila Islam endorsement, um, from AOC's leadership pack, which sort of more or less counts as an AOC endorsement. Uh, Running against her in the primary is also Carolyn Bordeaux, um, and she's also gotten quite a number of endorsements. Kyle, would you give us a a rundown of kind of the rest of the field and what's going on in this election?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you have in this race, you have Carolyn Bordeaux, who's kind of the finish the drill candidate. She almost got there in 2018. She lost to Rob Woodall by like 400 and change votes. Then you have Nabila Islam, who who has the potential to fill the sort of true blue progressive primary challenger type role, similar to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's role in New York in that primary election. And then interestingly, in this race, you have Zara Karinshek, who's a state senator. Um, I can't remember if she resigned her seat to run for this or not. I think she did. But she, when she entered the race, she was touted particularly by the AJC, is a really compelling candidate. She is a veteran. I think she had, it was believed she had good capacity to raise money. And opponents of Carolyn Bordeaux would sort of naturally raise the question of whether or not Carolyn Bordeaux can finish the drill, given that in a massive Democratic wave election, and uh, in, in a very swingy district, Carolyn Bordeaux did not win in 2018. Um, also included in this race, you have Brenda Lopez Romero, who... I think we are familiar with, we talked to her on the show and we are familiar with her as a member of the legislature, but it, it just doesn't seem like she has gained a ton of traction there. Um, and then there's, there's a group of other candidates involved, but I, to me, the dynamic that I'm looking for absent any polling that I've seen as sort of Bordeaux as the favorite Nabila Islam as, as the progressive challenger. And then I don't know exactly where to put Zara Karinchak. but you know, it, as described she is supposed to be competitive in this race as well.
0: So we've gotten a rundown of the dims in the Georgia 7th uh race. Who do we have on the Republican side of things?
1: So on the Republican side, to me the highest profile candidate is is state senator Renee Unterman. She was the champion of the Heartbeat Bill, the anti-abortion bill in the legislature, and I am honestly surprised that she is not just a shoe-in who Won this race going away? Instead, her main competitor appears to be Rich McCormick, who is a emergency room physician. Um, he has landed endorsements from Club for Growth and the House Freedom Fund. Uh, the AJC described that he leveraged that into a pretty good fundraising quarter, and he he raised the most money of any candidate last quarter, and is competitive with with Renee Unterman on cash as we head towards this election. An interesting dynamic to me that I have noticed in this race, you would think in a general election that one of the biggest liabilities for Renee Unterman might be the fact that she championed the anti-abortion legislation. It is something that has galvanized Democrats, encouraged Democratic women in particular to run for the legislature. And when you apply that dynamic to a seventh district that is getting bluer and bluer, That just seems like bad news for her. It has come up in this primary about whether or not that would be bad news for her, whether or not Republicans would be reckless in putting her forward as the nominee in such a competitive district. But the thing that stands out to me about that argument is like Democrats can sit here and make it. It makes a lot of sense. It seems like it would be a driving dynamic in a general election. Democrats are not voting in the Republican primary in Georgia seven meaning it is actually incumbent on her Republican challengers to argue in a Republican primary that being the most anti-abortion candidate in the race is actually a liability. And I just don't remember the last time that sort of a a more moderate voice on the issue of abortion carried the day in a Republican primary. Um, But despite that, Rich McCormick is competitive And uh, this looks to be a competitive race in a primary, I imagine, likely to go to a runoff.
2: Well, there's lots of other reasons Republicans wouldn't like Renee Unterman. Uh, You know, she is a longtime state senator and, you know, Famously, is the you know, was was the committee woman for Health and Human Services, and was pretty infamous for killing a lot of bills that had a lot of momentum because she could. Uh, one of the most famous instances of this was uh, Scott Holcomb's rape kits bills died in her committee for a long time, and so I mean, there's and, you know, so she she's not a politician without a record, and while you know some of the marks against her definitely insider shenanigans and skullduggery, this is a Republican primary and there are a few creatures of internal politics more than primaries. And so I think that is not unrelated to the issues she's having because she's made a lot of enemies over the years. And so I'm sure that there are some, you know, Machiavellians out there saying like, let's pick the right candidate to win this district. But I I think there's also plenty of just hurt feelings behind the trouble she's having.
1: I think one other dynamic that's worth surfacing is while you have seen an increasing number of women elected to Congress in recent years, Democrats tend to be the party that carries almost the entire increase in the number of women serving in Congress. And Republican voters, in most instances, don't seem to be very keen on electing a woman to Congress or to other high-profile positions when they have the opportunity to do so. And so I think that in some sense that may be an uphill battle for Renee Unterman as well, that the enemies that she's made on tough issues at the Gold Dome combined with a Republican primary electorate that may not be super jazzed about uh, putting forward a woman as their nominee, that may sort of, I think, help explain why McCormick appears to be so competitive.
0: Luke, you've been following some of the other Georgia races, including some of the ones that you mentioned earlier. Are there any elections of note that you want to highlight for us?
2: Well, I could go election by election, but ain't nobody got time for that. So <laughs> the the thing I would highlight is that, you know, two years ago, there were two narratives that I thought that were very interesting in the results of the 2018 primary elections. And the first one was that there was a... Lot of candidates who had not been getting a lot of attention, but either successfully or almost successfully knocked off incumbents. Probably the biggest case of this was that the state Senate minority leader Steve Hensing almost got defeated in his primary. Um, so that's going to be something I'm watching again because. The State House Minority Leaguer Bob Trammell has primary opposition. Demetrius Douglas has primary opposition. There's just a lot of uh, State House reps with primary opposition on both sides of the aisle. Uh, I'm not going to name all of them, but you know, I'm just going to watch those and just see if there's any similar trends to the elections last time.
1: Dogs. The dogs are super jazzed about the yeah, state legislative. Primaries. Yeah,
2: that's right. They're super jazzed about. It. I'll also be curious to see uh, how the state Supreme Court elections that are happening turn out, since there are two uh, current judges who are challenged and have decided not to cancel their elections at, for the moment, because they might cancel it after they lose. <coughs> so we'll have to see if you know they actually do that or not. But I digress. The other uh, big thing is a more local story for me, which is the athens Clark County government uh, got far more progressive very quickly in 2018, and that's basically a ongoing story. And so it'll be interesting to see if the Empire Strikes Back and some of the more progressive <laughs> candidates are defeated, or if you know the the Force Awakens or continues oh to awaken, whatever uh, in the um, you know election of some more progressive candidates. And, and I think this time it'll be pretty interesting because um, there's a lot more like Tim Denson types who are running, who are, um, less established than Tim is as being a, you know, pragmatic progressive. And I, I'll be curious to see how the more, I, I guess I would say radical, uh, lefties, uh, fair. And so I, I'm, I'm looking forward to June 9th. Uh, you know, I'm hoping election night will be smooth and, interesting and not somehow affected by the t- pandemic and turned into a disaster so i'm hoping election day is a day that i get to feel normal in this in this uh mad times we find ourselves
0: i'm just impressed with the number of star wars references you just made although i challenge you to make especially one. since
2: i was not playing those at all
0: <laughs> oh my gosh you are such a nerd or a geek not sure which geek geek probably both probably both So let's move on to our third and final topic, uh, which is Kyle's discussion with Olivia.
1: And joining me on today's podcast is Olivia Bauer, one of our wonderful research interns. Olivia, welcome to the
3: podcast. Hey, thanks for having me.
1: Um, So we are actually welcoming you you back on the podcast on what is actually your last day of your internship. Um, We have been really appreciative of the work that you've done for Peach Pod this semester and last semester. Um, And we wanted to talk with you about the the big project that you've worked on for the last couple of months or so. Um, You have a new series of newsletters on our website, and and for our listeners, you can find links to this in the show notes for this episode, Um, on your, your newsletter called Peach Press, where you dive into issues in rural Georgia related to economic development, environmental problems, problems with healthcare access, a lot of the really complex and vexing problems that policymakers face in terms of supporting rural areas of our state. Um, so, can you just describe for our listeners? You know, you you brought this to me about halfway through your internship that you were interested in in working on this project and working on these issues. Can you just describe a little bit for our listeners your interest in these rural development issues?
3: Yeah, uh, thanks for that in- introduction. Basically, almost half the world lives in rural areas, and they face really unique challenges because of their distance from resources such as solving issues to access to healthcare, education, information, jobs, they all require special attention. And I really learned that for the first time during this internship here at Peach FOD. I saw that underdevelopment of rural areas in Georgia was more serious than I had previously known. And it seemed to be getting worse. The articles I was reading made it seem that way. And so I wanted to do a series of newsletters to focus on these rural issues uh, this semester, especially to educate myself and others on the challenges that sparsely populated areas face. And these are places that supported Governor Kemp this past year. So I especially noticed it because he was the one that was making budget cuts that reduced services to these areas, which aggravated the problems that I've been investigating. And so I just really felt like coming to an understanding about the issues that rural Georgians face can help reach some sort of rural-urban consensus on how to address the problems that the state faces without ignoring any group's issues. So
1: your newsletters cover sort of a variety of issues across different issue areas. Sort of at a high level, can you describe for us what some of the most significant challenges that face rural Georgia are?
3: Yeah, I think that the main thing I found is a lot of issues in rural development are interconnected. So rural areas have low economic growth, and then healthcare barriers and spotty broadband coverage, they discourage investment in these areas. And so since jobs in agriculture and manufacturing have been disappearing due to automation, and also just because of the lingering effects of the recession, because some of these jobs never returned after the recession in these areas, it really makes it difficult to restart the economy and revitalize these areas. And so there's a a shrinking population that's also aging without being replaced because young people are moving away instead of staying, you know, to have more access to hospitals and high-speed internet and things like that. And uh, so there's medical needs that are growing with this aging population, but the rural healthcare system is deteriorating and rural hospitals are struggling to stay open. And I found that almost half of the rural hospitals in Georgia are at high financial risk. And then this the physicians there are aging as well in rural areas. And not a lot of medical professionals want to move to rural areas. There's a real succession crisis in less populated areas for physicians, but other medical professionals as well. Um, So one
1: rural development issue that may not immediately come to mind for our listeners is that of environmental damage. And you actually began this series by taking a look at the water pollution crisis down in Juliet, Georgia. Can you just describe for us what happened in Juliet?
3: Yeah, so there's a Georgia power plant in Juliet, and it burns coal to create electricity. And I learned that coal ash is produced as a side effect of burning coal, which is a toxic residue that contains metals that can cause cancer, inhibit development, cause all sorts of medical issues. And so they dispose of coal ash in these manufactured ponds, is what they call them. And these ponds are often unlined. And this causes the chemicals... Uh, to leach into the ground, and it can pollute groundwater supplies. So the residents around the plant in Juliet were suffering from higher rates of cancer, and the water was tested, and it found to have the metal chromium in it. So residents of Juliet were tired of their situation being ignored by lawmakers, and they bottled up the dirty water that was being run in their town, and they took it to the Capitol to protest and made headlines. And they were starting to get legislation through this year, which is how I came across the story.
1: When compared to sort of smog-choke skies over big cities, people often don't consider environmental damage in rural areas. How widespread are other instances of of environmental devastation in rural areas across the country?
3: Yeah, I had never heard of coal ash before. I began seeing legislation about it this spring when I was investigating rural issues. And it shocked me because there's a number of disastrous coal ash pond breaches over the past 50 years. Uh, Even the largest toxic waste spill in U.S. history was a coal ash spill. It happened in 2009 in Tennessee when a dam broke and 9 million tons of coal ash spilt. Yeah, 9 million tons of coal ash broke and spilt over a billion gallons, uh, over 300 acres, and uh, destroyed homes and contaminated rivers and ecosystems. And there was also another large spill in 1967 when a Virginia ash pond spilled 130 million gallons of toxic coal ash waste into a river and killed hundreds of thousands of fish and resulted in three decades of ec- ecological damage. And there's also been collapses in the past 10 years into Lake Michigan and in North Carolina. And the it causes severe damage to the river ecosystems and pollutes the fresh water in these states.
1: Yeah, I think it's just a helpful reminder that These issues are prevalent everywhere. You know, there's a lot of political forces that weigh on, you know, protections against pollution, um, whether or not local governments have the ability to police these things, but also sort of deregulation at the federal level that allows uh, incidents like these to happen. Um, So I think it's helpful for folks who, you know, who may have heard a little bit about the water crisis in Juliet, who may... um, may be a little bit familiar with some of these other issues in rural areas around the country to remember that, you know, it's just not, it's not just urban areas that that face these problems. And when you sort of improve your policies around pollution and environmental protection, you're going to have benefits across the board. Um, another challenge that rural Georgia faces is the inability to keep hospitals open. You, you touched on this a little bit. Um, but why does healthcare access in Georgia continue to be a problem?
3: Uh, I think a big part of the problem is insurance. So rural populations are more likely to rely on public payers and also more likely to be uninsured. The uninsured rate in rural Georgia is 38%, which is 8% higher than in urban areas. And so reliance on Medicaid and Medicare for hospital payments leads to deficits because these payments are lower than the patient's actual medical costs. And so in more populated areas, Payments from patients with private insurers will balance the costs, but in rural areas, there's not enough privately insured patients or enough supplemental aid from the government to offset this deficit to their medical costs. This burden could be partially shouldered in Georgia if they were to, if the state was to expand the Affordable Care Act, but Georgia is one of the states that has not expanded Medicaid yet. So seven rural hospitals have closed in Georgia in the past 10 years and the us in the us as a whole a large majority of hospitals that have closed in the past 10 years were in states that haven't expanded medicaid so i think expanding the aca is really a crucial first step to solving this issue in georgia
1: yeah i think the big issue there i mean particularly you know you and i olivia are talking amidst the coronavirus pandemic um and it has become clear to me that this the pandemic itself is not an issue that only is affecting big cities like New York City, where they had you know one of the worst outbreaks in the country, but another place where we have one of the worst outbreaks in the country was down in Albany in doherty county and then I read today that over in Hancock County there is also increasingly a a problem with covid nineteen there, and so you have this situation where you've had this erosion of the availability of healthcare, the lack of investment by the by the refusal of the state to expand Medicaid under the ACA. And all of that has contributed to this lack of healthcare infrastructure that's like really needed right now. I um, mean, so it's, it's confusing to me, you know, we'll talk a little bit about some of the politics of this in a minute. But this is a very challenging policy issue. But the solutions are out there. And if the the state was to make more adequate investments in, in rural healthcare infrastructure, the, the benefit of that would accrue mostly to voters who tend to vote Republican, who tend to back the, the party in power in our state. And yet, our state has sort of continued to drag their feet on providing adequate solutions to this issue.
3: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think it's, there's definitely going to have to be some sort of government led solution, especially especially with the populations shrinking and their tax base is shrinking. It just seems like they're being more and more ignored. But the only solution really is for the government to have to step in and help out because there's no way for the rural population to have faith in sort of private insurance companies or privatized healthcare that's going to step in because it wouldn't be cost effective or profitable for them to do so because the areas are just so sparsely populated.
1: So another issue where you have a similar dynamic where where the private market may not have enough of an incentive to add a, to adequately invest in in sparsely populated areas is is the issue of rural broadband and and your most recent addition actually took a deep dive into broadband access issues. This is an issue that has also become increasingly important amidst the the pandemic. So what are some of the barriers to greater broadband access in Georgia that you found?
3: Yeah, so it turns out that 16.5% of Georgians do not have high-speed internet, which I was unaware of before I started researching this issue. And this has implications for many of the other topics that I've mentioned in this segment and also in my newsletters. And so during the stay at home order and just over these past two months in general, it's just so hard to imagine not having internet access because for me, for a period of time it became my only form of socialization and it's been my only form of information. Not to mention how crucial it's been for online school and telework and just entertainment and keeping me sane. (laughs) So this pandemic has certainly drawn attention to where there's a lack of broadband access in Georgia. I think the reason for this deficiency just comes down to who's going to pay for it. And traditionally, cable companies were the ones that provided Internet. But in low-density areas, just like with the hospital issues, the installation of broadband equipment is not profitable enough for them to install the infrastructure. So The state has tried to incentivize broadband deployment by reducing the amount that cable companies are charged for using power poles, and also by allowing electric membership corporations and rural telephone cooperatives to sell broadband services. And even a plan for subsidizing half the cost of broadband expansion was passed in 2019. But where the funds are going to come from for these initiatives remains a mystery. So the issue is basically that the money hasn't been allocated to broadband by the state government. And it seems that they're sort of just hoping that some other entity is going to pay for it if they just keep putting out these smaller incentives instead of, putting up the large amount of money that it's going to take to get broadband access to these areas.
1: Yeah. This one is one of the more frustrating ones to me because your research looked into this a little bit um, during the 20, I believe it was the 2019 legislative session. We talked to Christy Swartz, who's a reporter at e news about this issue related to the telephone polls and the, attachments of equipment that that cable companies and other internet service providers want to do to that that is the method that they would use to expand their service if they were going to do it. And all of this fighting over the fees related to putting your equipment on telephone poles, that it just it stands out to me that there's a lot of griping back and forth between the various players who would be expected to provide a solution the the local governments that have to do the permitting, the companies that have to deploy the equipment and the infrastructure and begin to offer the service. But nobody, there's no sort of like driving influence to get to a solution on that issue. And I would think I don't I don't know your thoughts, Olivia, I'd be interested in them, though. But I would think that the status needs to be sort of the leader in driving that solution and bringing all these various players to the table to, to get this job done. I mean, it's, it's been really striking to me. I've seen a couple of images and reports in the AJC about students amidst this pandemic who are having to go with their parents and just sit in parking lots of schools or churches or libraries to get internet access. And that is the only amidst the pandemic, that's the only connection they have to their school. So it's really holding students back right now, and and the state has just failed to get the job done here.
3: Yeah, I'm hoping that this crisis is really going to motivate the state, or at least motivate the people to demand of the state to allocate more money to this, especially since in my research, I've seen so many parallels of people who are talking about how broadband today is like how electricity was 100 years ago. And it reminds me of uh, during the Great Depression um, when FDR made the programs of people going to uh, install electricity in rural places. And that was a source of jobs that he created. And it just, it's reminding me of the economic troubles that we're in now. I don't know if we'll see something the be, be, be exact same, but maybe it would be some sort of revenue, you know, to provide people jobs. And maybe we'll see something similar because it really is, it is like electricity was, it's necessary for our life now. It's more. Than just entertainment. It's not just a luxury. It's it's really necessary to have a high quality of life and to have access to information and culture and art and to be connected to the world around us and connected to you know what's going on and to be informed about politics, which is more important now than ever. Which is part of the reason why I wanted to make this uh, this newsletter, you know, to talk about issues that aren't being uh, t- discussed as much.
1: You do have to have the internet to download Peach so You do, yeah. uh, We do have a little bit of a dog in this fight. So I think that this begs for me, the question of how politics plays into this. We are a politics podcast, and and it has been interesting to me to watch, you know, I had been saying that one of the most influential things that I thought the Speaker of the House, David Ralston, was going to do, he he started to lead this effort in 2017 through the this uh establishment of a rural development commission it began the first couple of years that it offered recommendations it offered really sort of sweeping bold solutions at one point there was a consideration of paying people to move to rural georgia the baldness of that committee seems to have receded in the last couple of years that the recommendations for the last couple of years are not as sweeping as some of the earlier ones were. But this is an area that politically is is important to Governor Kemp to Speaker Ralston to Republicans who currently control state government in Georgia. You know, Governor Kemp relied on rural areas of our state as his base when he won the race in twenty eighteen. Um, but a lot of the challenges that rural Georgia faces suggest greater opportunities for government intervention, whether it's the expansion of, of subsidies for health care, like we've talked about, expansion of government subsidies for broadband, publicly financed infrastructure projects to deal with water pollution. In your view, Olivia, do you think that rural residents would benefit from leaning more on the government on government-led solutions to these problems?
3: Yeah, I do. I think it may be the only solution, because with populations of these areas shrinking and their tax bases shrinking, as I mentioned a couple times, they can't solve all of these problems on re- their own or rely on the private companies that have traditionally been relied on to do so. And so government intervention in these compounding issues is needed to help attract economic investment, which is needed to revitalize rural communities. And it's not only cable companies that don't find it cost effective to invest in rural Georgia right now. You know, jobs are elusive in these areas because companies don't want to set up shop if there's no hospital nearby, or if there's a pond of toxic waste, or if there's no high speed internet access. So these issues are important to address for the immediate well being of rural residents, but they also hinder economic development and job creation which just creates more problems down the road and prevents solutions from being found. And I think that the residents in these areas would be open to government-led solutions based on the research I did about the residents in Juliet who are getting so fed up with the environmental issues that they were facing that they went to the Capitol to protest. And they're uh, uh, traditionally a conservative area. And they were protesting for government solutions and more government investment and an environmental issue. So it just shows that I think that these areas are open to government-led solutions, and it wouldn't be a risk for Republicans. And I think that it's going to have to happen eventually.
1: All right. Well, Olivia, we really appreciate all the work you did for us. Um, The the research that you've done has been really interesting um, and shined a light on really important issues in our state, uh, issues that I'm sure will continue to vex policymakers, they should call you and ask for your advice. Um, But we have really enjoyed having you as a part of PeachPod. And good luck with all of your future endeavors.
3: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to work here. And I'm glad that I've been helpful to the podcast. I really enjoy learning more about these issues. So yeah, I have good luck to you in the future as well. And
0: with that, that is our show. Um, It has been so fun to sit in the host seat for a change. Um, It's always interesting when I get to do this. So thanks for the opportunity. And um, Kyle, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me. (laughs)
0: Luke, as always, it's great to have you. Thanks for coming.
1: Great to be here.
0: All right. And we'll catch you next time.
1: That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.